Welcome to this uh, COVID-19 edition of Rational Radio. In our virtual studio, Gigi Alcock, David Shapiro. We've got a lot coming up with Paul O'Sullivan joining us from London. Who knows how we got there? And uh, we'll also be talking to the man who's going to make respirators for South Africa. I'm Alec Hogg. Let's pick up with David Shapiro first. David, the markets themselves. Let's just go back a little bit. In the last two weeks, Wall Street has had its best fortnight in 80 years. Share prices up 15%. Uh, the year as a whole, the share prices are only down by 10% when you take the Dow Jones Industrial Average. If you take the, the tech stocks, the NASDAQ, they're only down by 4% on the year. It's been an incredible recovery, shortest ever bear market. What are you making of this? We're only halfway there. You know, if we, if we really measure how far markets did fall, they were down about, you know, 30%. So we've recovered half. The second half is going to be difficult. And I think that's what we have to watch. The news is, the news that's coming through is slightly better. You know, in the US, we're starting to see the death count uh, diminish, particularly in New York. Um, not much, you know, not as much pressure as there was on hospital beds. In Europe, we're seeing Spain, Italy, France, uh, report, um, better or, or a slowdown in the number of incidences and Germany's return to work. So it's, it's difficult, Alec. We're slowly getting there, but I still think there's a lot um, ahead of us in terms of whether the consumers will come out spending and feel that uh, there's a proper recovery on the way. So I'm very, I'm thrilled at where we are at the moment, but I think you've got to be very careful about how we tread from now on. Well, we're going to pick up in more detail on that side of the economy as well. But uh, Gigi Alcock, when we spoke two weeks ago, was already starting to see signs of stress in the informal economy in South Africa. We've had two week longer lockdown with that being extended as well to be five weeks overall. We see some quite disturbing pictures on our television screens. Hi, Alec. I think that... Um there's going to be quite a lot more of those disturbing images. Um, you know, a while ago, uh, I said quite controversially that the informal sector, if, if the employment um, generated by the informal sector was considered, the real rate of unemployment was closer to 12%. And I think we're seeing that now because the reality is that there are large portions of our population who are being sustained um, on uh, informal incomes, um, either their own small businesses or being employed by informal businesses. And uh, we're seeing uh, quite an impact on that. You know, on, in Alex uh, last week, there was a demonstration and, and um, uh, one of the ladies was interviewed on ENCA and she said, I don't want food parcels. I want uh, to be able to start my business again and feed myself. Uh, and I think there's this uh, quite a uh, widespread, um, and, and I think there's kind of two components to that. The one is that people are going to be looting and, and uh, demonstrating. And on the other hand, um, as I said, uh, what, two weeks ago, uh, there's going to be a lot of those businesses are just going to just start going back to, to work. And we saw that in last week in Tembisa, I've got photos of salons that started opening up again behind closed doors. Shisanyama started operating. Um, and, and the reality is that people cannot you know, what is an essential service? If you have no other form of income, if you uh, a, a, a small business that cannot access the UIF benefits or any of the other benefits, which to a large extent the, the informal sector can't access any of the benefits and interventions that have been put in place, the reality is that you're facing starvation. And so people will either uh, loot or they will start going back to work. And uh, 
and it's it's quite dire out there you know i mean we make all the jokes about people desperately wanting alcohol and cigarettes uh you know imagine the desire for for a glass of wine but now it's for putting food on the table full stop and and i think that um one of our interventions has to be about first of all what are we doing about those now and the second has to be about what about the day after because i think that to a large extent we trapped at the moment in looking at lockdown as it is and the real thing has to be and i think the government's been remiss on this in terms of saying the day after lockdown ends how are we are going to address that issue because that's really going to be the big thing on the agenda and of course just to complicate everything the science is now very inconclusive on friday dr j bhattacharya who's the a professor of medicine at stanford university that's where uh, if you might recall steve jobs gave his very famous commencement speech it's often rated the best business school and the best university in the United States. Uh, he's also uh, an inter- uh, a, a fellow of the Economics Institute. So it's a most unusual guy, professor of medicine and an economist. And his videos have gone viral where he has been questioning the whole basis for the lockdowns. And where he comes from is he says that the denominator, in other words, the number of people who've been tested is far, far too small. And then on Friday, uh, the Stanford University published a, uh, a research that they'd done in their local county and they've made it as representative as possible given, given higher weighting to poorer people. And there they show that the actual mortality rate is something like 50 to 85 times lower than the concerns that we had. So you just overlay all of that and you start wondering, well, have we got another Y2K issue that's happened here where everybody panicked uh, and actually the result was, was a lot different. David, what are you making of all of this confusing noise? <laughs> it's exactly confusing noise. I, you know, what's, uh, what's astonishing is that uh, there's not one government that has a coherent plan or is really well equipped and please correct me if I'm wrong if you can establish one you know one country that has uh, handled this correctly but I think that's 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 the problem no one knows what to do and I think if you listen to GG it's uh, we just locked down an economy not realizing how extensive supply chains are and how many people are hurt along the way. And we just assume that once we reopen, you know, everything's just going to fall into place. It's not going to happen. I think the damage is extensive. So, um, you know, when I say we have to take this literally one step at a time, we're not quite sure how we're going to get out of this. I'm thrilled at the way that, that markets are responding in the sense that we haven't seen another collapse, but I, I still think there are a lot of questions ahead. And, and, and worst of all is we don't understand the, we don't understand the virus. You know, no one's really got on top of it and understands it. What we, the only, the only good thing is that, uh, we are getting more hospital beds and, uh, uh, you know, the health, the health authorities have, have seemed to be getting or hopefully getting on top of that. I'm talking from a global perspective, not from a South African perspective, but, but Alec, every one of these arguments is relevant. You know, we can't dismiss them. And, and we've got to work out, uh, which course we take. I don't know which course is going to be taken. Gigi, let, let's just assume that uh, Dr. Bhattacharya is right, that the mortality rate of COVID-19 is more akin to the normal flu season mortality rate, i.e. 0.1%, 
rather than the 1% or 10 times higher that has been propagated by uh, certain people, including his country's Dr. Fauci, who's been saying that's the reason why we have to keep uh, lockdowns, etc. If, from what you see within the townships, where presumably people are not, it's not that easy for people to uh, social, social isolate, etc., um, also, from what we see in the more formal sector, that the hospitals in South Africa have certainly not been overrun by COVID-19 cases, not even close to it, then maybe there is an argument to be had for readdressing or rethinking the whole approach that we're taking economically-wise. Look, I think, Alec, the problem is that in Africa you can't apply the same um, solutions that you're applying in in, uh, Europe or America in terms of of locking down. So, you know, one of the articles I wrote, um, I, I said, you know, why don't we, you know, a large proportion of the township economy is basically in the residential areas. It's not like you've got a business area and stuff. So should we not look at actually, um, if we are going to have a lockdown, doing it street by street rather than um, than uh, trying to get people to stay inside their shack or their yard, which is, is clearly not happening. I mean, we're seeing that uh, people are much better. I've got uh, um uh, someone went down into the rural area, Msinga, where I grew up, and, and took uh, some uh, some visuals with a drone. And uh, most people are sitting in their yards uh, and very little traffic out. I mean, people still walk to the river to fetch water and so on and so forth. But people are adhering to it to a large extent. And in the rural areas, people are kind of staying within their little community as opposed to just inside their houses. And I think that we need to look at that differently and we need to look at it differently from an economic perspective because if we open up that you can operate within your street um, or certain businesses with sure um, whatever uh, distancing measures you need and sanitize it and so on but at the end of the day surely it is a far better thing to to make it you know a law that you have to wear a mask if you go out and that you can only operate in your street um, because it'll allow, um, first of all, practical way of ensuring people um, don't mingle. And second of all, it will allow for some form of economic activity to happen. And the reality is that is how it's happening at the moment. Uh, someone shared a, a, a visual of, of uh, Deep Slurt the other day. And of course, you know, the police van drives down the road and everyone pops into their shack and the police van disappears and everyone pops out and starts chatting again. Um, you know, so so let's look at reality. You know, we are not going to close down and all that happens is that the police and the army get more, um, you know, tougher on people and there's all these incidents we, we're hearing about. And you know what, apartheid with all the military and emergency measures and whatever it might be could not keep people from uh, engaging in shabins or, or, or selling veggies in the street and so on and so forth. We have to look at this on a different um, level. And I think we have to, we can't ignore the, the, the danger, but on the other hand, we have to balance it um, with, with, um, with reality, with a large dose of reality and, and what's practically possible. Paul O'Sullivan joins us now. Gigi, actually a, a nice segue from when you talk about things closing down. Paul's been very outspoken about the closing down of South African Airways. Um, the, the piece that you wrote last week that we published on Biz News, Paul, you were pretty uh, vociferous about uh, what has happened at South African Airways and saying that 
we shouldn't kill it or the country should not kill it because of the corruption that the Zuptoid put forward and in particular the former chairman Dudu Mieni. Have you had much response to that? Uh, yes, Alec, I've had a lot of response um, and I, I anticipated some of it. Um, everybody's of, uh, not everybody, a lot of people are in favor of keeping the airline. A lot of people think it's a, um, you know, a train on resources and it should go, but I think some of it's quite short-sighted. You know, they, they don't realize the cost of liquidating that airline. Now, I think there's a cabinet meeting today uh, at which these, or there'll be a follow-up, but presumably, there were, well, we believe there was a cabinet meeting last week at which uh, the Minister of Public Enterprises, Pravin Gordon, who comes in for quite a lot of stick in your, in your piece, uh, actually did propose the closing down of the airline. Well, obviously, I'm not privy to what's going on at Cabinet. Um, I don't think anybody is, uh, other than the Cabinet members themselves. But um, clearly, it's not as clear-cut as people think. You can't just shut a national airline. Now, um, they reckon for somewhere between 40 and 50% of the income of AXA, um, they bring tourists into the country from long-haul destinations, and those destinations are very important to South Africa. Um, the tourism industry itself, the hospitality industry, accounts for millions of jobs, and there's virtually no competition in the long-haul market if South African Airways are closed down. So people will be able to fly from America, the UK, and all the destinations, but there'll be no competition. So the prices will go up, and the effect of that will be a reduced number of tourists. You did tackle Pravin Gordon uh, in July 2016 on the whole issue of the way South African Airways was being managed at that point. Just take us through that interaction. Well, Dudu Mayeni was uh, still the chairman of South African Airways at that stage, and uh, I asked Pravin Gordon straight up, when is he going to deal with the corruption that's taking place at South African Airways? And I was particularly concerned about Dudu Mayeni. And he made a statement that South African Airways would be dealt with um, with the introduction of the board members. But the problem is he kept Dudu Mayeni in place for a further 16 months to finish off what started and clear off out the back door without as much as uh, any sanctions whatsoever being applied to her. And 16 months, you can wreak a lot of damage in that time, and she did. Was it politically possible, though, for him to do anything about it? Okay, if one looked at what happened at the Sondor Commission, um, Pravin was very outspoken about how his hands were tied and this was going on and that was going on. What he singularly failed to do was to go and open a criminal docket. Act 12 of 2004, which is the anti-corruption legislation, makes it clear that if you're in a position where you know there's corruption going on, you're obliged to report it to the authorities. That didn't happen. David Shapiro, come in here for a minute. Um... Pravin Gordon is, is, is a little bit of a, almost like a, 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 a saint in many ways in South Africa. And here we've got somebody saying that uh, he actually needs to be called to account. Well, to an extent, I agree with Paul. Um, I, you know, I, I made a comment last week uh, on um, just on TV about where we used to be with um, SAA. You know, it had an enormously good brand in Africa, not only in Africa but in the world. Uh, it was a top top airline. We had the best pilots. Not only that, we were known for our technical excellence. 
And uh, the, the big concern, as Paul correctly says, you know, there's an ecosystem around every little business. Um, even a mine shaft has has people, you know, has businesses around the mine shaft that rely on it from schools to doctors and so on. And if you consider what this means for, for, for SAA, you know, for AXA, for all the other businesses, uh, that are associated with bringing tourists in or seeing through, you know, seeing traffic, that has to be replaced. We can't let it go. So who's going to come in? You know, who's going to come in and fill the gap that exists? Um, there has to be a way around this, but to a large extent, this has been our own, um, you know, our own making. You know, we've scored a lot of goals and, and one has to also now work out what's the cost. What can we do to resurrect it? I mean, UK to, you know, those routes, the London routes, the New York routes, the other routes and that, uh, can't just be given away. And also the domestic routes, Cape Town, Durban and so on. So I, I, I'm a bit surprised that they're just going to close it down and just, you know, sack 9,000 odd individuals. And with that comes another few thousand that are going to lose their jobs because of that from catering to everything. So um, there has to be a plan B other than just simply closing it down. Is there, Paul, is there any plan B that looks possible? Well, there's no doubt that the airline as it currently stands um, needs to be fully restructured. And that restructuring process needs to take account of the fact that routes, for example, like Johannesburg, London, are one of the most lucrative airline routes in the world. Uh, There are other routes that have, for example, Germany, Paris. These are very lucrative routes. So maybe what they need to do, and, you know, it's not my job to dictate what should happen, but the logical thing to do is to, to can all the loss-making routes and just, you know, bring this, pair it back to an airline that's only focused on delivering good service on the lucrative routes, the money-making routes. And if that means they have to lay off some equipment, then they should lay off the equipment. If it means they have to lay off some staff, unfortunately, those staff will have to be laid off. But that surely has to be far better than liquidating a company that. Uh, will have a devastating effect on the economy of the country. Gigi, I'd love to get your take on this, given that you, you're so close to the informal sector and that the argument has been SAA only benefits rich people, so let's get rid of it. I think to, to, a, to a certain level it does um, benefit the rich in terms of flying on there, but I think we have to look at the ecosystem. I'm a really big believer in the, in the fact that we have to look at the total economic ecosystem. So you know, even from the informal sector perspective, the person who earns their income from SAA goes home and buys a quarter or goes to a Shisanyama and, and so on in the township and gets their hair done at the hair salon and, and so on and so forth. I think that the ripple effects are far beyond just the um, the formerly employed people who may get retrenched. Um, it's, it's really about how does that uh, travel through the entire system. Also from a kind of informal sector perspective to a large extent you're talking um you're talking communities so you know people who are employed in a community serve a, a very powerful function within those township communities so yeah i my feeling is would be um uh, that uh, we, we we need to measure the impact pure uh, much more than just those employed um 
much more than those jobs that would be lost. It's the trickle through to the rest of the economy and, uh, you know, rather reduce um, salaries rather than remove them completely. David, it does appear as though things are very complex uh-huh. in this world of ours today, uh-huh. and sometimes we lose sight of that. Uh-huh. Just, well, retrench 9,000 people, uh-huh. uh, shut SAA, and the problem will go away, but you, you might have a multiplier effect, which is very negative. Uh-huh. It's exactly that. I just immediately, what comes to mind is BitVest. You know, Bidvest uh, uh, services all the aircraft, uh, buses the people to the, you know, to to uh, the various aircraft, and someone will fill that gap. It'll be EBA, it'll be Virgin, it'll be uh, Etihad, it'll be all of those companies will come in and double their liners, and and uh, the profits will not flow to the country. Will flow obviously outside. Of course, they will create jobs there, but this is uh, people will travel. Alec, we're going to go back to it. You know, it's not maybe a month or two. We'll be a bit cautious and we'll change some of the health regulations and hygiene regulations, but they will travel, and someone's going to come in and fill the gap with. Uh, flying down to Durban, it might be Comair or so on. And uh, I think that there's got to be some kind of plan um, devised that's going to, uh, you know, either privatize SAA in a different kind of way, but something has to be done. But we, these are the supply chains that we don't understand. You know, these are the supply chains that actually drive the global economy. And, and even on the informal sector, just think of the chaps just think of the number of taxi drivers. Just think of the people who wheel your baggage. You know, even there, there might be a few, and they control them. Many, many people. The chaps who run the airport. You know, the the various shops and so on. So uh, someone will fill the gap. But um, you know, we've we've got to consider that. We've got to take that into account. We can't just close it down. Paul, getting back to that very hard-hitting article, I, I know there were 50,000 people actually read it on the first day. Have you had much reaction to uh, what were some pretty outspoken opinions? Alec, at the end of the day, no matter where you are in, in the hierarchy in, in the government, if you're aware of wrongdoing, it has to be dealt with. And unfortunately, for a number of years, uh, even those that are now seen as being on the right side of the fence in government, uh, they, they, they were on the wrong side of the fence and they didn't do anything about it. Now, the legal obligations imposed are quite clear. And it's not as if there was no warnings given. We first opened a docket against Dudu Maeni in March 2015. And we made it clear that in our opinion, she was running the airline into the ground. We opened another docket in January 2016. Now, in July 2016, when Pravin Gordon gave the presentation at an Ernst & Young business breakfast, um, the question was put solidly to him, what are you doing about stopping the, the rot at South African Airways? And the the answer was nothing more than a fob-off answer. Um and as I said, this woman carried on for a further 16 months in office and brought that airline to its knees. Now, the economics of running an airline are not the sort of thing that should be entrusted to somebody that's best qualified to teach primary school children. And I think that's the problem from, from the get-go, that people were appointed to run the airline and then she dissipated or got rid of some of the key talent that South African Airways have built up over a number of years. So you're left with this airline being 
hollowed out, if you like, of good quality skills because the people weren't prepared to sing and dance to the tune of, of Duda Mayeli. And I think now the, the chickens have come home to roost and the airline is on its knees. But clearly the solution has to be restructure the airline, get it up and running in a profitable manner, and then grow it uh, uh, organically, grow it when the time is right in the marketplace. Bring it back to basics, get the number of staff down, get the equipment levels down, and start, not start again, but start with a, a reduced uh, market. Paul O'Sullivan talking to us from uh, far away. Uh, lovely as always to have that conversation with him and uh, useful insights there on, well, an alternative proposal to South African Airways. Although I must admit, David, we're getting quite a lot of feedback from the business community, including some uh, uh, captains of South African Airways, one of whom actually went on the record to say, okay, we know that it's not working in its current form, but don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. There are alternatives. That, that's what the whole business rescue um, exercise was supposed to be, rescue the business. And, uh, you know, they've let it down, obviously. They're so short of money at the moment, so desperate um, that they can't, uh, you know, afford to, to take the next step. And we've been hit where, obviously now by, by this COVID-19, where there's no travel at all, so it's just exacerbated the situation. But I, I'm, I agree, don't let this die. You know, I'm not a... Uh, I understand bad business, but this has got such a strong brand name and it's got so many, it's like closing Coca-Cola, you know, <laughs> because they, it, it, the brand is strong enough to, to stand on its own. You just need to, to refinance it as well. And, and we did have that technical excellence. We did have the good people. They're still around somewhere. You'll find it. They're working for all the other, all the other airlines now, you know, bring them home. <laughs> Well, not only working for the, all the other <laughs> many are still working at South African Airways, that's for sure. But Gigi, the point you were making about the ecosystem, and, and David referred to it as well, just elaborate a little bit, um, because th- this is an incredibly complex world that we live in, and you've got a, a unique insight uh, for a business analyst into what's going on in the informal sector. So th- take us through your argument of unemployment is not 29%, it's actually 12%. And that those people, the difference is 17% of our population are actually employed in different ways. And that we haven't really taken that into account in this whole lockdown. Yeah, so, I mean, I think in short, if you, um, if you just look at the wholesale sector as an example, something like uh, brands like Unilever, Tiger Brands, Pioneer, etc., you'll find uh, anything from 60 to 80% of their turnover goes through the wholesale channel. So where's that going? That's going to spaza shops and other township businesses, um, hair salons. Uh, if you look at um, the city, uh, uh, Joburg Market as an example, something like 70% of their produce is going to um, informal traders and uh, township uh, kind of uh, water outlets and food outlets, you know, just the potato sales. Are, um, I spoke about the agent at the uh, city, at Joburg City Market, who, who said they lost 30% of their turnover immediately that the uh, spaza shops were, and uh, the, the, the vegetable traders were not allowed to trade. So that just gives you an idea, just a few, and I can carry on ad nauseum, but there's a whole bunch of different sectors where um, 
you know, you, you realize suddenly that the massive um, imp uh, benefit of that sector, then people say, well, you know, they don't pay tax. Well, um, well, first of all, they pay VAT and they um, don't claim VAT. So they're net payers of VAT, you know, so they're paying on all their purchases. They're paying VAT. Uh, so, you know, there's a huge benefit to the economy on that. Um, Unilever is hopefully paying their tax um, and they they're paying their tax on turnover that they have generated by selling to this informal sector. So you can't look at it simplistically and just say, well, that old lady on the street corner is not paying her tax. Well, generally, she's below the tax bracket, number one. Number two, by creating this um, this uh, business, she's, she's uh, creating a turnover from the tigers of the world and so on. Um, the next thing is that they are a, um, they're not a drag on the economy because they are now supporting themselves and not uh, standing in an unemployment queue or, or stealing or, or um, begging or whatever it might be. So we, we need to consider that. So, so if you look at this informal economy, they're, they're, the measures are, we don't have enough information about it. There's not enough data about it. Um, but uh, if you just take the drop in business across the formal retailers, um, the wholesalers, and so on, at the moment, based on lockdown, it will suddenly give you a sense of what scale of turnover is being generated by this um, informal economy. Um, and um, so, and, and how does it work? To an extent, um, there is massive uh, networks and interconnectedness between these, um, you know, so what we see in households, for instance, is that You'll find a household of, call it three, four, five people, and those people, if you ask them what do they make a living from, they will say from a social grant, a social grant of 700 rand, two kids, you get 350 rand a child, call it 700 rand. Um, and when you dig deeper in the work that I've done, you find that uh, they're also renting out a back room. There's a 30 billion rand um, uh, income uh, coming to township households from backroom rental. They're renting out a back room. They uh, are doing laundry for someone who works um, at SAA, as an example. Um, they will be um, selling snacks at the local school to the school kids and so on and so forth. So you suddenly look at a household and that household that theoretically is living off 700 rand a month is actually earning around 10,000 rand a month from multiple other sources. Uh, so if we, if we look at that, suddenly we, we realize that the, the kind of interconnectedness, I guess, of the economy and, and, uh, and, and the extent to which formal income supplement informal incomes, informal income supplement the opportunity that's not created by formal incomes. Uh, and and the, the key part of this is that um, to many ways, the formal economy is not capitalizing on this. So, you know, what is the benefit of bringing in informal businesses into a net uh, where you, um, you know, banks can lend their money, where government can uh, extract tax from them, municipalities can gain rent from these um, type of outlets. And because we're not bringing it into the total ecosystem, we're losing out in, uh, to a large extent uh, in terms of that. And, and you know, the, the crazy thing is, if you go to downtown Randburg or, or, or even at Santon, I guess, you'll see a poster on the wall that says, uh, you know, free abortion. You'll see another poster that says penis enlargement. Um, you'll see another one that'll say find lost lovers. And then you'll find one on the wall that says um, get a loan. And it'll say condition to blacklist, not important. 
bring three months pay slips and three months bank statements. And, uh, and that's the reality is that uh, we're only catering to the people who have a pay slip and we're ignoring the fact that there's this massive other uh, part of our economy. Um, and uh, we're looking just at the people with pay slips in that formal sector, both for help and, and for opportunity. David, it's a very interesting point, this, because we believe that things are going to be different after COVID-19, after the lockdown, when we come out of it again. Surely there's a relook required now on this huge sector that Gigi's mentioned, which doesn't even, doesn't even rate a, a mention. You know, it's a much broader argument. I think in developing countries, uh, the way that we measure GDP is, is old fashioned, exactly as G, Gigi has been, uh, you know, exposing that. And I agree with it. I buy that argument. You know, I'm, I'm fully behind it because you can actually see it unwinding on every street corner. And, uh, the fact that we're not measuring it in, in, in Unilevers or not trying to extrapolate it in Unilevers numbers or even any other retail or, or wholesaler. But it goes further than that. I think the whole way that we measure GDP globally, I think is, is, is outdated. You know, this goes back, I don't know, a hundred odd years where you've got a tech economy. Uh, where, uh, you know, we're not able to actually measure the production that's being created by various, uh, tech apps and so on. So I'm, I, you know, I'm happy to buy it. And I mean, we can see that the problem is that we, you know, we, 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 we're not seeing it in the taxes or we are seeing it in the taxes. Maybe it's, uh, it's already there in terms of that. Uh, but I think there's a lot of other stuff that is not, that is not measured. And, and to be honest, I don't want to, I don't think we should start applying that to a lot of those areas like the backroom rental and that. I think, I think it's going to kill that economy and make it difficult and it'll go underground. But, uh, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm fully, I'm fully, um, you know, happy accepting this argument that, you know, that, that, that unemployment is far lower than we tend to measure in the formal, you know, in the formal uh, stats. Last, uh, during the Easter weekend, I had a conversation with Ian Ambler, who is the co-owner of a company called Clifford Engineering, and it was a, a fascinating interview. It, it went pretty viral. Uh, many people were interested in it, not least because to get a respirator nowadays, it's like uh, in, in the Business for South Africa, a press conference that I, I attended um, a couple of, uh, couple of weeks ago, uh, Stavros um, uh, Nicolaou from Aspen said it was like trying to hunt a dodo. They're so rare. Uh, and with, with Ian's company, with Clifford Engineering, they actually produced one, which many of them are still in use, but they stopped producing them in 2003 because of corruption. Of course, with what's happening now, Ian's dusting off the, uh, the blueprints. He said he was prepared to give those blueprints to anybody else. They would like to start producing them again. And I thought it would be a good idea to bring him on to the show today uh, and you guys can also ping a few questions at him just to find out how things have developed. Ian, uh, I hope you can hear us now. Um, can you just bring us up to date with uh, what the response has been uh, to the interview that we had? Sure, Alec. Um, the response was remarkable, actually. We've had an incredible amount of assistance and goodwill. You know, we've had... Um, uh, assistance from companies like Rapid 3D who have, who have printed 3D printed parts for us, um, you know, overnight in, in incredibly short time frames. 
other companies we work around with around here, Cosmos Engineering, who've made parts for us and refused to let us invoice for them. You know, they've literally made them for nothing. It's been an incredibly collaborative effort. Um, and it's been very gratifying to see it kind of restores your faith in human nature when you see this kind of thing. What was interesting, um, you know, our biggest delay, believe it or not, ended up being the um, parts stuck in, in, in customs in Johannesburg at OR Tambo. Um, and we re- we lost a whole week on that, believe it or not, um, which was a tragedy. But it, it was in- impressive to see, you know, how people helped us. We had um, ANC politicians rolling up their sleeves to help us. We had uh, Nigel Ward, the, the vice president of Toyota South Africa, assisting us himself, you know, and he, he really got stuff out of customs for us in record time, together with a company he uses for all their own clearing. So it's been um extremely humbling actually and gratifying to see how everyone has rolled up their sleeves to assist us and we had we got our our updated um ventilator model running on saturday afternoon um and it's working beautifully if 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 the line is clear you may hear it breathing behind me in the background but uh, it's running very nicely um we are incredibly happy that it's up and running we thought we would be late uh, we we could have been done a week earlier if it wasn't for the customs delays, but the bottom line is it's up and running, working, and doing doing what it's supposed to do. We're very pleased with it. Now, the critical part about that is the uh, whether the machine will actually work on sick people. Uh, I, I did pose again uh, at that press conference. I actually asked one of Gigi's questions and one of your questions, and the question there was uh, there was a lot of interest in uh, in in the respirator, but uh, there was also it was also made that it has to be technically uh, correct you can't just put any uh, any bellows into someone's lungs and expect that they they can be able to be uh, to be resp- respirated uh, just take us through the uh, not the technicals of it but the development of it to uh, which makes you confident uh, that this is a solution oh and we can hear it in the background by the way okay good um, look, Alec, obviously it's, it's a machine that, that, um, you know, is connected to a human being. You've got to use the best possible components. We don't just use normal pneumatic valves or, or pressure transducers or anything like that. We buy medical rated components. Um, so they are completely clean. There's no pneumatic grease inside them or anything like that. The air has to be completely filtered and clean. Um, the solenoid valves that we use, you need to make sure that they cannot create there's no possibility of a spark because oxygen is highly combustible and it can explode, uh, pure oxygen. Um, so we obviously take care of all of those details. But, you know, if, if, it were, if we hadn't built these things before, Alec, and supplied to hospitals and worked with various doctors and hospitals, anesthetists, you know, um, we, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't have a chance the, the, in, in, in doing this this quickly. But the fact of the matter is we did this many years, for many years. Um, so that, you know, that gave us a big head start. Um, we know what components to use. We know how to do the, the, the control. Uh, we didn't have not changed the design. It's the same proven design. All we did was update the components in it, particularly the electronic components, so that they are present day components that you can buy off the shelf. Last we spoke, you were having problems actually getting through to the right people at the Department of Trade and Industry and the IDC. Any progress there? Um, Alec, yes, the, the IDC have been very helpful, um, and we appreciate that. Um, there's a lot of people there rolling up their sleeves and working extremely hard. 
Um, and I, I really do respect that. Um, you know, we had the CEO of the IDC call us personally and send us an email or two and a number of his staff assisting us. Um, so, you know, we are, we, we, we appreciate that very much. The IDC, and I'm talking unofficially here, it, it looks like they will move forward with a, a, a simpler design than ours. Um, it's basically what we call a, uh, a CPAP um, ventilator, CPAP standing for continuous positive airway pressure. And without going into too much detail, it's, it's, um, ours is, will, will do the same function, but ours is also has additional functions which, um, enable it to be used as an ICU ventilator, an intensive care unit ventilator. So it will do the simple functions, but it will do a lot more. But, and this is where the big but comes in. It's not a complicated device. Most um, ICU ventilators are not simple to use, uh, not at all. Uh, our one we developed 20-odd years ago was specifically developed to be an IC, a full ICU ventilator, um, which built for African conditions and, and made to be very simple to use. And it really is very simple to use. So, you know, it will cover the CPAP functions. That, that's the absolute minimum, but it will cover a lot more than that. Now, in my opinion, I understand why the IDC appear to be concentrating on a, a much simpler CPAP type unit. Um, it does reduce the complexity and it, it's, I think they're sort of trying to provide, to follow the 80-20 principle where they, they kind of, um, covering the 80% or 70% need rather than the 100% need. But I do believe that there's a definite uh, requirement for slightly more, um, Detailed ventilators that aren't, and I use the word detailed as opposed to complicated. Ours can be used not just as a constant pressure device or CPAP device, but as an active breathing device that will assist the, actually assist the, um, the patient with each intake of breath. And it will be automatically timed. It is automatically timed to, um, to work with his breathing. In other words, his breathing triggers the assistance that the machine provides. It doesn't just force him to take a certain number of breaths per minute, uh, which could actually do more harm than good in a COVID-19 patient. So what's next, Ian? Uh, how many of these ventilators are you going to be able to produce for the country? Alec, look, it, it, I, you asked me that in our last interview, and I said it's a chicken and egg question, and it really is. Um, if, if, if We understand that if there's an enormous demand, we can't possibly produce enough. Um, at the moment, we're not being asked to produce any directly for South Africa at all. In fact, most of the interest, we've had enormous interest, most of it from being from outside our borders, strangely enough. Um, but how, how many we can produce really depends on how many we get orders for. Um, we've, we've, you know, we're a company that works with a, a large number of subcontractors that we've been using for many years and, and suppliers. Um, and we will continue to use those. And we've discussed, we've been talking with many local companies who've contacted us to assist um, with making additional components where we can't keep up with our own um, supply chain. Um, we've had people like, again, um, people like uh, Nigel Ward, the vice president of Toyota, phoning up and saying, look, he's completely ready to assist us with whatever we need to ramp this thing up and go into serious production volumes. And, you know, that's Toyota understand that kind of thing better than we do. Um, and we would certainly take 
take full advantage of a, of a kind offer like that. But yeah, so, sorry, man. Yes. Uh, here we have people saying that respirators are rarer than dodos, and you saying you'd like to make them. Where's the the gap? Where's the disconnect? Look, Alec, there's the disconnect is we haven't had anyone yet from the South African government or Department of Trade and Industry or IDC or anyone like that say, guys, we want you to make, you know, 500 of these or, or 5,000 of these or anything like that. That really is the disconnect. They are going through a, a process and we're waiting, waiting to hear what comes of it. We made the decision uh, three weeks ago, Alec, that we weren't going to wait for any more response or comeback or, you know, we, we've still heard nothing official, so I'm glad we didn't wait. We've decided to go ahead, and in the last three weeks, we've used that time to make our first working unit, and it's working really nicely. Um, but the bottom line is we've done that off our own backs. We made that decision on our own, and we got on with it on our own, and we haven't had any financial assistance thus far, um, which is a pity. Um, but um, as I said, we are – as I said last time, Alec, you know, we, we're seeing this – this this project we're engaged in as a as a double-edged sword. There's the altruistic side of it, where we obviously want to do the right thing for our for our country and our people and build ventilators. There's a desperate need for them, and the other side of it is from a a more typical business decision. We need to keep our company moving, and we need to be able to pay our employees so they can pay their uh, they can put food on the table for their employees. And we're chasing all available options right now. Would okay. we prefer to make them for mm. South Africa rather than overseas? Yes, we would. If you got an order today from the States for 500, how long would it take you to produce them? Um, Alec, if we got an order today for 500, I think we could make them um, easily within a month if, and this is the big if, we need a hotline or a speed dial number to someone in government or in SARS or, or the IDC or whatever, who can get us things through customs. We cannot sit for a, waiting for things to clear in customs for a week. You know, our most critical components were um, items that hit, hit customs on Tuesday, uh, the week before last, and we only got them out on Tuesday last week after the, after the um, Easter weekend. And I understand that it was particularly problematic during the lockdown and the Easter the weekend. But those are the things that kill us. And if, if, if we can have assistance with that kind of thing, it will make an enormous difference to how fast we can make these things. David, we've seen that in many areas, uh, mountains have been moved mm-hmm. by, by government uh, in this crisis, in this COVID-19 crisis. You would think that if respirators mm-hmm. are such a desperately required uh, piece of equipment, in which they're looking all over the world to try and source them. Uh, you got you got a homegrown solution that can produce hundreds within a month. They would open it up. I, I in fact, uh, I hope Ian's still listening because I yes. did a fascinating uh, interview this morning with Philips. You know, their results came out, which were very good, and they were talking about respirators. And uh, there's there's a lot of sophistication as well. I would assume that uh, they were at the top end because they were talking about the the complications of the software, you know, which obviously uh, monitors the way you're breathing and so on. But um, and and he was saying the CEO was saying just how they're working, you know, three shifts a day, you know, 24 hours a day, seven days a week to get these, uh, what he called a precision diagnostic equipment, you know, through to the users. 
Um, I, I, the question I want to ask Ian is, what does it cost? What what does a respirator cost? You know, of of his making. What 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 are we talking about in terms of of cost? And also, how do they compare, say, to someone like Philips? And and I'm not questioning the quality that Ian's just simply to try and gauge where we are in the global, uh, you know, in the global market. Yeah. Look, the the cost is a difficult one to answer because it depends on how much sophistication you want in the unit. You know, yeah. If you wanted it a really simple CPAP-only unit, that's a big yeah. difference in price to the one. Ours will do that, and it will also do all the ICU uh, functionality. Yeah. So, and But my opinion is we should build these things all the same with all of that yeah. functionality because our unit is particularly simple. In terms of pricing, you know, we, we have not got that 100% battened down yet um, because we are still looking at the cost of some of the components and transport, et cetera, et cetera. But it's, and also we have used slightly more expensive components in the thing. You know, we, for example, the PLC, the programmable logic controller is a Siemens unit. It's made in Germany. It comes from Germany, but they're incredibly reliable. And that's what we put our software into. Um, and they, there are cheaper ways of doing it, but that, that unit is completely reliable. It's completely proven. There's hundreds of them available off the shelf. Um, and it's, you could argue that it's a, it's an overkill for what it is doing, but it's, and, and the current circumstances where delivery is critical, it's a no brainer to use an item like that. So the, our, the cost of ours compared with a Philips ICU ventilator, it's enormously cheaper. Um, you know, our, in rough numbers, depending on the spec of the machine, it's going to be somewhere around $8,000 or something like that. But again, don't quote me on that because these are estimates at this stage. We can't not quote you because you're actually on our oh, program. No. Yeah. <laughs> well, then you caught me, Alex. Are we doing this live? <laughs> We're not doing it live, but it's recorded as live. But still, around $8,000. Okay. Gigi, from your perspective, uh, do you have any thoughts for Ian? Uh, sure. It's, it sounds like a completely different world. Um, but think uh, about Msinga. Msinga, Tugela Ferry Hospital in Msinga has the uh, has the the uh, dubious distinction of being the centre of uh, TB, the the drug resistant TB, and um, has probably the highest number of cases of drug resistant TB. So, I think when coronavirus arrives there, it's going to be the one that's got Chuck Norris. Uh, imprinted on it, you know, so um, <laughs> they're very likely going to need them more desperately than anything else. I think, you know, I, I mean, my, my feeling is is that to a large extent, and this is my frustration with government around the informal sector, among other things, is that the ability to move is just so slow and, and you know, hence the, the lack of orders. And I think this is the tragedy is that when you have got a um, – a, a epidemic like we have now, you need agility and speed of movement and uh, in some ways drop a lot of the bureaucratic barriers and tragically this is not happening. It's interesting that in certain areas it has it is happening. There are certain things that have been going through very rapidly but in a case like this, as you've mentioned, uh, not so easy. Ian, I guess you've got to start moving mountains yourself somehow. Yes, and we, we're doing that, Alec. You know, we, we are actually, we, we're moving ahead as, as best we can, and we have a number of other interested parties who, who we're talking to, um, which is not quite the way we've expected it to go. But obviously, we, we're a business. We've got to, we've got to make business decisions, um, 
for the best of ourselves and our uh, and our employees and their families. Um, but just to highlight, to pick up on something Gigi Alcock said there, you know, he mentioned small companies' speed and agility. And Alec, I want to pick up on that. I, I said the same thing in my interview to you two weeks ago that I thought, in a way, a company like ours would be could. There's an iron, irony here that a company like ours gets overlooked because we are small. And um, but in a in a situation like this, you know, we've shown that in three weeks we built. We've built a working ventilator. We've got the drawings done. It's all modeled. It's completely done. We've got a complete bill of materials and it is working. It is physically running. It's operating. It's pumping mechanical lungs up and down. And tomorrow we'll test it further with, uh, with the, um, doctors. Um, so in, in, in three weeks, we've done that. And, and in fact, we could have done it in two weeks because we lost a full seven days with the most critical components sitting in, sitting in, um, customs. And that's where I think. You know, um, if, 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 if you use a small agile company and you put them together with the might of the DTIs and, uh, um, IDC. and the IDC, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, and those guys assist us with the things, the logistics like getting stuff through customs and all the rest of it and assisting with buying, buying power, et cetera. You, you do the two together. It's amazing what can be achieved. Um, you know, I'm not pretending that we are, our business is, um, you know, particularly uh, unique or, or, or it's a one in a million or anything like that. We were very fortunate in that we have made these things before. So, you know, let's take advantage of that. Um, they're proven, it's developed, it works. Um, let's take advantage of that and get on with it. To me, it makes perfect sense. And as I said many times, we are completely happy to work as collaboratively as possible. We really are. Ian Ambler from the Peter Maritzburg company Clifford Engineering. David, we have seen government changing things and making differences. It does appear as though it can move very rapidly when it needs to, and yet something's falling off the table here with uh, with respirators, which which Together Ferry, for instance, could do with half a dozen tomorrow. But Alec, it's you know the private sector in South Africa has always held its head up high. You know, we've, we've always come through when we've needed to. Uh, I've got great respect for South African businessmen and their ability to, uh, to be creative and, uh, you know, in difficult circumstances, whether it's from the mining sector to the engineering to doctors to lawyers, you name it. Uh, what is the holdup now is, is the, is government, you know, and they've got to play the game as well and they've got to come to the party. I mean, Ian sounds a very impressive man and it's obvious that he runs a, you know, super business. So, um, and, and if he can benefit from it, even if it's not from a South African point of view, which is sad, uh, well, maybe, maybe we've just opened up a whole new industry for, uh, for, you know, for South African business on the export side. But yeah, you're right. You know, South Africa, we've got to, we've got to get the right people in government to do the right kind of things. And there's got to be a department that, uh, that recognizes these, these issues. Uh, and it applies to the same argument we had with SAA, Alex. You know, it it wasn't the technical issues. It wasn't, uh, you know, technically we've been there. We've we've delivered the service. What did let us down was the was 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 the government interference and incompetence in actually running the business. Ian's company, incidentally, exports ninety five percent of the machines it makes. This is not respirators. They've just gone back into that. Ninety five percent of the machines it makes into the United States into the most sophisticated first world company. So there's nothing wrong with their engineering. That, that, uh, 
uh, probably puts uh, puts that idea to rest. Just to look at the post COVID nineteen economy, we mm-hmm. we're seeing the, the the country opening up in two weeks' time. On the formal side of the economy, how are you expecting the opening up to occur, and how long might it take for us to get back to a semblance of normality? I think it's going to take some time. I think we've got to build up confidence. I think from what Gigi says, you know, obviously the informal sector is going to get there a lot faster than maybe the formal sector. But um, we have to start with mines and factories first. We have to start with big business and get certainly the mining side of the uh, economy uh, operating. You know, the, the other side of it, the entertainment side, the restaurants and that can come later as, as hard as it is on that. But even there, we can start making some kind of concessions on that. But I think the first step is definitely to get big business working again and to get the mines producing so, you know, that's the side that I'd like to see happening. Yes, commodity prices are still under pressure, but uh, we've got to get back to work there. And and the, the longer we leave it, the more it's going to leave its scars. And the restructuring that everybody's talking about now, the lessons that we would have learned in the last or in this five-week lockdown? Well, I, I hope that has some impact, you know, and I hope we can get back without ideology, you know, proving another stumbling block. And I've never been a political animal. I've always believed, as we've heard with uh, with Ian and Clifford Engineering, and said, you know, the excellence is there. Do whatever you can uh, to bring out the excellence in this economy. And Alec, we've had so much, we've had so much experience of this along the, in the many many years that we've been in business. And uh, I just hope that we resurrect uh, a lot of those businesses and resurrect that spirit, you know, that has got us through so many issues in the past. Gigi, from your side, the unlocking of the informal sector, it's uh, surely, well, 10, 11 days to go until that occurs. So I quoted in one of the articles I wrote um, a guy who created Idea Lab, and he said, uh, and he, he said, what was the most important thing for a startup business to be successful. And it, it came down to one thing, it was about timing. And I just think that, uh, you know, don't waste a good crisis. And, and uh, so, so I think that the, the, um, there's huge opportunities represented by, by this. And particularly, you know, I think, uh, you know, as I said earlier, everyone's looking at the lockdown. We should be looking. The reality is that we're going to have, for the next six months, we are going to continue to have post-lockdown restrictions and certainly the impact, if not longer. But let's just call it six to eight months. And, and in my mind, the opportunities um, from both a government perspective, so for instance, they should be actually bringing us into the loop at the moment in terms of saying, this is how we want to, or thinking of, or please give us ideas of how we should unlock the, the, the system, the economy, at the same time not uh, bringing any risk, health risk, or whatever it might be. And I, and I think that it's a real mistake that they kind of go, da-da, here we go, and uh, the next step, and... and we, we should be using these two weeks to start planning for a post-lockdown. I don't believe they're going to extend the lockdown after the end of April. I just think that uh, the economy won't be able to absorb it. Certainly the informal economy will not be able to absorb it and we'll just have large-scale social unrest. So let's assume that, uh, you know, my belief is that they're going to start opening up schools and, and uh, smaller businesses and, and et cetera. So, but we should be preparing for that and, and as a country, number one. Number two, I just think from a business perspective, there are massive opportunities. I mean, I just wrote about 
the other uh, in an article I think you had this morning about the opportunities in the financial services sector. You know, we're wanting to get social grants, uh, not have people queuing up at, at malls and at ATMs. What are the opportunities uh, that we should be looking at to roll out in the next six months to be able to alleviate that opportunity? And, and so on, you know, delivery mechanisms, distribution uh, models um, in that space. I think there's massive opportunities that we should be looking at, um, which will both help the informal sector, but also creating business opportunities for, for other businesses outside of that informal sector. And, and uh, let's, let's look at the economy differently and let's look at uh, solutions to that space differently because we have no choice right now. So it, it forces us, in essence, to, to sharpen our pencils. David, given that, uh, it, it might sound as though it's idealistic, but in a good crisis, nothing is idealistic because you can reassess everything. Uh, would, you, where would, you, would you remain invested in, in uh, South African shares? Or are you going to be cautious about some? I'm still very cautious. I'm very cautious about how long this is going to take um to really turn around i think you know when it comes to managing other people's money which which i do you're a risk manager you know you can't be i can't uh, with my own money i can do what i like but with other people's money you've got to make sure that you're in the right kind of companies and you're protecting it and i think against the backdrop that we've seen here things are still very very tight so um you've got to separate what i do from that uh, and I still believe that, you know, I was listening to Philips this morning to the CEO. I mean, it's a remarkable business uh, based in Holland. Uh, what they're doing, the kind of machines they're doing, how hard they're working, uh, where technology is taking over. You know, those are uh, those are the kind of investments that we have to make to protect people's money. But it doesn't mean, <laughs> you know, you've got to separate the two from, from a different point of view. You know, we're still working to make South Africa work and we'll do anything. To, to help along those kind of lines. And, and, you know, hence we're on the program and, you know, hence we're making comments and hence we're, we're doing webcasts and writing articles and doing that to help people through this very, very difficult time. This has been Rational Radio. We'll be back again, same time, same place next week. To our in, in virtual studio guests, David Shapiro and Gigi Alcock, thanks so much. I'm Alec Hogg. Until the next time, cheerio.